You are listening to a message from the Living Word community in Center City, Philadelphia. We are followers of Jesus Christ, called to love God and love people, to share Jesus and help people experience true life change that can only come from knowing Him. We hope that you enjoy this message today. Thank you, Ted, for the introduction. Appreciate it, of course. Thank you, ladies, for that worship dance as well. Uh, greatly appreciate that. Um, it's good to be with you this morning to be able to share the word of the Lord together. Um, many of you, like me, the last uh, week have been reading the end of the book of Isaiah. Um, if you were following our corporate reading program, uh, we finished up Isaiah on Friday. Um, some of you have asked if we know yet what we're going to be reading next or when we'll start that new reading program. We don't, but as soon as uh, we decide what we're doing next, we will let you all know. But where we are going to be this morning is we are going to be in Isaiah chapter 65. Isaiah chapter 65. Um, and we'll take some time together this morning to read that and to look at some of the things that the Lord will put in front of us through that. I also just wanted to thank you. Not a lot of you were aware, but some of you were aware that I had an aunt uh, pass away about two and a half weeks ago. Um, this was an aunt on my father's side. Um, she was almost 90. Uh, she had spent uh, her entire adult life in Texas, so I had not seen her actually for a while. Um, but she was an aunt that I knew, knew the Lord. Um, the last 15 years or so, we would exchange Christmas cards and one of the blessings was for me was to always get a Christmas card from her because she would always mention the Lord, always really make him prominent in the note or the, the word of greeting that she would send to me. So on Friday in uh, New Braunfels, Texas, which is about 30 miles north of San Antonio, I had the privilege of being in my aunt's memorial service in the church that she had called home for almost 20 years. Uh, my uncle had passed away in 2001 and she moved there uh, after he passed. And I, I have to say two things were just an incredible blessing for me. One was just to be able to see where my aunt had fellowship with the Lord. Uh, that was her church home, that was her spiritual family, and it was really, really neat to see a couple of the folks that were good friends of hers. Another thing that was a real blessing for me was just to experience a very different flavor of Christianity. It was a, a Southern Baptist church in the heart of Texas. And those folks, you know, they love Jesus. Uh, they may speak with a little bit different accent and they may worship him with a little bit different style. Um, but at the end of the day, when you talk about the Lord, they love to talk about the Lord. Uh, they love to give him first place. And so I just, I was really blessed to be in a very different expression of God's people worshiping him. Um, so anyways, for those of you who knew and prayed for me, thank you. I, I greatly appreciate that. And for those of you who did not know, that's, that's fine. Uh, the Lord always blesses. But I just wanted to share that with you. And if you ever get a chance to go to Texas, uh, they got good barbecue. Uh, they got super friendly people. And they've got a really powerful expression of the gospel. Uh, a little bit different than ours, but still a powerful expression of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that really was a blessing for me. But anyways, let's pray and let's take some time, as I said, to look together at Isaiah 65. Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you so much um, for once again um, gathering us on a Sunday to sit at your feet, to hear you speak to us and to teach us through your word. 
Father, we want to thank you so much for the ministry of the dance team that we all just experienced and what a blessing it is to see you worshiped in that way. Father, I want to thank you also for our sisters and brothers in, in the southern states that worship in a powerful and very clear presentation of the gospel way. Grateful for that. But Lord, even as we have connections with folks all over the globe, and all of the many different ways and all of the many different languages and all of the many different styles that are used to worship you, the one true God. Just grateful to you for that, Lord God. You didn't make us identical. You didn't make us uh, absolute identical images of one another. And you, you, you love that diversity. You love that, that depth and, and just am grateful to you for that. But Father, I'm also grateful for this expression of the gospel that you've placed here in the heart of Philadelphia. And Lord, we just pray that you would always help us to be faithful to what you are asking of us. Lord God, this is where you have placed us. This is where you have planted us. And that is intentional, Lord. You want us at this time right here in the city of Philadelphia. You want us loving folks here. You want us serving folks here. You want us living for you here. And so, Jesus, we just pray that each day you would help us to do that, to really be an expression of who you are in this city and to the folks who live here. And finally, Father, as we've already heard it mentioned a couple of times this morning, we want to thank you so much for the way that you speak to us through your word. Lord, we thank you particularly for the things that you have been showing us through the book of Isaiah, and so many powerful declarations of your character and your acts of redemption in your world. Just grateful, Lord God, for the way that you reveal yourself to us through the pages of Scripture. And so, Father, today as we take a little bit of time to look at Isaiah 65 together, we ask, Lord God, that you would really give us your wisdom. Give us your heart for this message that you declared some 2,800 years ago. May it burn in our hearts today. May it draw us closer to you. May it conform us more to the image of your Son, Jesus. And it is in his name, that name that is above all names, it is in his name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen. Sorry, I opened my eyes and that microphone looked really big. Maybe I'd move closer to it with my eyes closed. So Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah 65. What I want to do is I want to read the first seven verses together and spend just a little bit of time about talking of a couple of, of central themes that are presented to us. What we are going to do this morning is we're actually going to read the entirety of the chapter, but we're not going to read it all at once. So we're going to start by just reading the first seven verses. So Isaiah 65 verses 1 to 7. It says, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. All day long I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own 
imaginations, a people who continually provoke me to my very face, offering sacrifices in gardens and burning incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend their nights keeping secret vigil, who eat the flesh of pigs and whose pots hold broth of unclean meat, who say, keep away, don't come near me, for I am too sacred for you. Such people are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that keeps burning all day. So let's, well, let's read two more verses. I apologize. See, it stands written before me. I will not keep silent, but will pay back in full. I will pay it back into their laps, both your sins and the sins of your fathers, says the Lord. Because they burned sacrifices on the mountains and defiled me on the hills, I will measure into their laps the full payment for their former deeds. So again, this is probably a passage of Isaiah that if you read it this week or if you're hearing it right now, this may be a passage of Isaiah that you wouldn't necessarily enjoy spending a long time over. It's a very sober passage. It's a very in-your-face passage. And of course, what the Lord is doing is recounting before Israel some of the many, many, many sins that she had been committing. And as we have worked our way through the prophet Isaiah, but formerly we worked our way through the minor prophets, we saw that regularly the prophets of God were called upon to indict the people of God for their sinfulness. And so we can't just skip those and get to the good parts. We can't just quickly read those and say, well, where is there something encouraging? Where is there something that will comfort my heart? Those will actually, of course, they come. And in the latter half of Isaiah 65, we will see that come. But if we genuinely accept the entirety of the prophetic word as the word of God, we need to give equal measure to all of it. And so, yes, this is not a pleasant passage. God was recounting through the prophet Isaiah how wayward and how unfaithful and how sinful the nation of Israel had been. And so that is certainly one of the central themes in these opening verses of Isaiah 65. Some of the things that they were doing, they were eating pigs. Well, some of you may really enjoy bacon or ham or barbecued pork. And of course, today there's no problem eating that. But before Jesus declared all foods clean, God had specifically said to the nation of Israel, you are my people and you must be different. You can't be like the nations around you. You can't worship the gods they worship. You can't dress the way they dress. You can't cut your hair the way they cut their hair. You can't eat the food that they eat. You must be different. You must stand out. You must be that weird guy nation standing in the corner that doesn't look like everyone else at the party. That's basically what God said to Israel. So one of the things that he said is you can't eat all of the foods that the nations around you eat. 
And one of the foods that was forbidden was anything that came from a pig. But what we see here, of course, is Israel was totally disregarding that. Israel was totally disregarding that and was shedding the blood of pigs and was eating the meat of unclean animals with absolute disregard for what the Lord had asked of them. And there's a powerful comparison the Lord makes. He says, you are like smoke in my nostrils. You know, many of us can think of a time where we got too close to a campfire or when we're standing at an open fire and the wind shifts and that smoke blows in our face and we get that smoke in our nostrils. It's such an incredibly unpleasant feeling. And it's a feeling that we usually try to recoil from and stand in a direction that's not downwind from the fire. What a, what a devastating declaration the Lord makes by declaring, that's what you've become to me, Israel. You have become like smoke in my nostrils. And so we see here that Israel, over the course of hundreds of years, had allowed herself to come to a place where she was disregarding the Lord. And she was disregarding what the Lord was asking of her. And one of the ministries of the prophet in the Old Testament, folks like Isaiah or Jeremiah or the others, was to indict the people of God in hopes that they would repent, in hopes that they would return. Because there would have been some who would have heard these opening verses of Isaiah 65, and the conviction of the Lord would have come upon them. Certainly not all, but more than likely some. Some would have been reminded of their sinfulness. Some would have been reminded of their waywardness. And they would have had their hearts convicted. And they would have repented. So that's part of why we need to read these passages of Scripture. Maybe there are some things in our lives that we are accommodating, that we are pursuing, that have no place in our lives. Maybe, in fact, why we read over a passage of Scripture like this so quickly is because we don't want to be convicted. We don't want to have the Lord remind us of our sinfulness, of our waywardness, Maybe a passage like this gets a little bit too close to home. And maybe the Lord in his goodness is showing us some of the things that we have started to bring into our own life that have no business being there. So maybe, in fact, this is a passage of Scripture that we need more than we are comfortable admitting. But the great news is, if you're sitting here right now, and maybe the Spirit of the Lord is showing you something, showing you something that you've brought into your heart, showing you something that you're pursuing, showing you something that you're accommodating that you know is completely against what the Lord asks of you, then there is repentance. There is repentance. That's possible. That's possible. And where there is repentance, there is forgiveness. And where there is forgiveness, there's restoration. And where there is restoration, the sins of the past are forgotten. So we should never, ever shy away from passages of judgment. 
We should never shy away from the Lord bringing into the light the sinful things that we do in the darkness. That should never be something that we recoil from or are ashamed or embarrassed of. That should be something that we embrace so that we can repent and so that we can be forgiven and so that we can be restored. That's the heart of the Father for us. So if we look at verse 2, there's a summary of the Lord's constant pursuit of the nation of Israel. All day long, I have held out my hands to an obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. Turn with me quickly to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. Because what we're going to see is that Paul is actually going to quote in Romans chapter 10 from Isaiah 65 verses 1 and verse 2. So in Romans chapter 10, it's an incredibly profound theological argument that Paul is making in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So we're just dipping our toes in these waters for a second. But in Romans chapter 10, let's look at verse 21. It says, but concerning Israel, he says, all day long I have held up my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. A very close rendering of Isaiah chapter 65 verse 2. And part of the argument that Paul is making in Romans 9, 10, and 11 is that the nation of Israel has hardened her heart against the Lord. So really, he's taking that theme of Isaiah and he's expanding it. And he's saying that, for the most part, the nation of Israel, unfortunately, has rejected the Lord. The nation that he chose out of all the nations on the planet. He could have chosen any nation to uniquely belong to him. He could have chosen any people to reveal himself the way he did through the law, through Moses, through the prophets. Yet of all the nations on the planet, God uniquely chose Israel. But unfortunately, what was true in Isaiah's day continued to be true. And that was that the nation continued to reject the Lord. So Paul is actually emphasizing and highlighting that in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, but specifically quoting Isaiah 65, 2 and Romans 10, 21. But it's interesting because if we go one verse earlier in Isaiah and one verse earlier in Romans, we see Isaiah declares something that maybe at first we didn't understand, but Paul certainly helps us to fully grasp what the prophet was prophetically speaking. So looking again at Isaiah 65.1, I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. To a nation who did not call on my name, I said, here I am, here I am. Now, within the context of Isaiah 65, you may think that God is, again, describing the hard-heartedness of Israel. And I think, in part, actually, that's probably true. I think, in part, Isaiah 65.1 is an indication of God's pursuit of a people who had no interest in him, a people who did not pursue him, a people who did not cry out to him. But even more significantly, what Isaiah was saying and what Paul understood 
is that God was revealing himself to the Gentiles. God was revealing himself to the nations who never cried out to him. To the nations who cried out to Chemosh and Dagon and Molech and the Baals. Absolutely incredible what Isaiah 65.1 is saying. To nations that wanted nothing to do with God. To nations who were steeped in pagan practices. To nations who had never even heard of God. He was revealing himself to them. He was making himself known to them. And the Apostle Paul, as Jesus Christ revealed himself to him and gave him the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles, the Apostle Paul began to understand the words of Isaiah in a way he'd never understood it before. Because what Paul actually said is that because Israel hardened her heart, Salvation was made available to the Gentiles. That's incredible. Something as devastating as Israel rejecting her God. Something as utterly, utterly disappointing as the nation that he had chosen rejecting him. What the Apostle Paul does is captures the spirit of Isaiah and expands it and says, through that hardening, through that rejection, the Gentiles are being saved. The Gentiles are being saved. And so it reminds us that no matter how devastating a circumstance might be, no matter how discouraging a circumstance might be, God is able to redeem it. God is able to redeem. Because what Isaiah was saying and what the Apostle Paul was saying in Romans, that in part, salvation came to the Gentiles because Israel rejected him. That's incredible. That's incredible. But most, if not all, of us sitting here today are Gentiles. We have come to Christ not as direct descendants ethnically of Abraham. As the Apostle Paul says, we have been grafted in. We have been invited to share all of the blessings that were originally only for Israel. And in part, that has come because Israel has rejected him. What an incredible principle. But again, it reminds us our God is able to redeem. Our God is able to bring life out of death. Our God is able to bring hope out of despair. Our God is able to bring good out of evil. This is who our God is. So whatever situation you're looking at, believe me, it's far less devastating than the nation of Israel rejecting the Lord. Not to say your circumstances are not devastating at times, they are. But on the scheme of devastation, the entire nation for the most part rejecting her God is far more devastating than any of the discouraging circumstances that I face. So if God is able to bring 
Salvation to the Gentiles through his own people rejecting him. Who knows what good he can bring out of your discouraging circumstance. But just sit back and watch. Just wait and see what your God will do because this is what our God is capable of. Let's keep reading. So we left off at Isaiah 65, 7. So let's pick it up in uh, verse 8. And we are going to read through verse 15. Uh, Yes, 8 to 15. It says, this is what the Lord says. As when juice is still found in a cluster of grapes, and men say, don't destroy it. There is yet some good in it. So will I do in behalf of my servants. I will not destroy them all. Now, as I continue to read this, those are the two words that I want you to listen for. My servants. My servants. Because the Lord is going to repeat that designation a few more times in this passage. So picking it up in verse 9. I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah those who will possess my mountains. My chosen people will inherit them and there will my servants live. Sharon will become a pasture for flocks and the valley of Achor, resting place for herds, for my people who seek me. But as for you who forsake the Lord and forget my holy mountain, who spread a table for fortune or some pagan deity, and fill bowls of mixed wine for destiny, another pagan deity, I will destine you for the sword, and you will all bend down for the slaughter. For I called... But you did not answer. I spoke, but you did not listen. You did evil in my sight and chose what displeases me. Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says My servants will eat, but you will go hungry. My servants will drink, but you will go thirsty. My servants will rejoice, but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts, but you will cry out from anguish of heart and wail in brokenness of spirit. You will leave your name in my chosen ones as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death, but to his servants he will give another name. So again, let's just take a couple minutes and unpack a little bit of what Isaiah puts in front of us. He starts with a metaphor. He starts with a metaphor. He said, you know what it's like? It's like like a grapevine that has sort of a weak, sort of pathetic-looking cluster of grapes left, and it's probably time to, to burn the vines and prepare for the next season. It's probably time just to give up on whatever is remaining because there's no real harvest that's going to come from that. But then someone says, no, wait a second. There still is some life in a couple of those grapes. And it still may be that we can get some juice, get some wine out of those. So don't destroy the entire vineyard yet. Yet. 
And then in the second part of verse 8, we are introduced to this idea of my servants. And the Lord says, for the sake of my servants, I will not destroy all. For the sake of my servants, I will not destroy all. This may remind you of the conversation that Abraham had with the Lord when the Lord was telling him that he was going to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because of their incredible sinfulness. And Abraham, remember, has this incredible back and forth with the Lord. Lord, for the sake of 50, will you not spare the city? For the sake of 45, will you not spare the city? And Abraham keeps getting bolder, and the Lord keeps saying, yes, of course. For the sake of 45, for the sake of 30, for the sake, even for the sake of 10, I will not destroy the city. And what Abraham understood is that oftentimes, the people of God, the people who are trying to live righteously, the people who are trying to live for the Lord, they are a small, small, small percentage of the population. Oftentimes, if you read about this, as people discuss this theme, they use the word, the remnant. The remnant. That small little bit of Israel that always remained true to him. At times, it wasn't much. You may remember the story of Elijah, the prophet, winning an incredible display of God's power on Mount Carmel. And then in despair and depression, he runs and says, Lord, I'm the only one in the entire nation of Israel that doesn't bow the knee to Baal. And of course, the Lord deals with his wayward prophet, and the Lord deals with the, the depression of his wayward prophet. And then finally at the end, and he says, and oh yeah, Elijah, by the way, there's 7,000 who don't bow the knee to Baal. Now, 7,000 may not seem like much, but 7,000 is certainly more than one. And so in verse 8, what is being given to us is this idea of the remnant, and it's a glorious idea. It's a glorious theme. Because what it says is even though that for the most part the nation of Israel was sinful, even though for the most part the nation of Israel was turning her back on the Lord, that much is absolutely true and that much the Lord confirms. But yet in the midst of that, there were always some that remained faithful. There were always some that still did everything they could to live for him. And so today we are living in a culture, maybe not in Texas, but certainly here up north. We are living in a culture that is becoming more and more and more hostile and antagonistic to Christianity. We are rapidly becoming the remnant. We are rapidly becoming a smaller and smaller percentage of our society who is willing to say, I love Jesus. And I'm trying to live for Jesus. And I want to follow him. Now in Texas, if you say something like that, they probably won't think much of it because there's still a strong 
culture of Christianity there. I'm not saying everyone's saved there. But here up north, because a couple people asked me at my aunt's church, they're like, what's it like up there? I said, well, to be honest with you, preaching the gospel is hard. I said, preaching the gospel is hard. There's a lot of folks that are not really that interested in it. And he kind of nodded his head, I think somewhat expecting that answer. And so the encouragement that we can take is that God always has his eye on his remnant. God always knows who belongs to him. God always knows who his own are, even if we are becoming a smaller, smaller percentage. Even if we are living in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile to us, we are still part of God's glorious remnant. And remember, God doesn't need a lot. As Jonathan and his armor bearer learned, God can save with only a few. God doesn't need a lot. So there are times, certainly, my own heart gets discouraged as I see our culture becoming less and less anchored in Christian principles and more and more embracing of ungodly principles and practices. Of course that's discouraging. And of course that's challenging to navigate. But when I think about God's faithfulness to his remnant, when I think about God's love for his people who are willing to stand for him, even when it's not easy, even when you're not going to have a lot of nodding heads in the unbelieving world, even when you're not going to have a lot of agreement, God still looks at his remnant. God still remembers his remnant. God still has hope for this world. God still has hope for the city of Philadelphia in part because of the remnant who's still living here. And my hope is that verse 8, even as it was true for Israel in Isaiah's day, is still true for us, that God will not destroy the entire city of Philadelphia for the sake of his servants. That God is holding back his judgment against a city that in many ways deserves his judgment because of us. Because of us. Because we're still here. Because we're still loving him and living for him and proclaiming him. We are still part of his purpose in this planet, particularly part of his purpose for the city of Philadelphia. You know, another incredible redemptive purpose of the Lord. When you have a culture that for the most part adheres to Christian principles. Now again, I would always choose that over the opposite. So when the laws of the land and when the ethics of the people are more in alignment with Christian principles than not, of course, that's always a good thing. But you know what actually is very difficult to do in a culture that is primarily Christian in its moral practices? It's very difficult to recognize the true followers of Jesus. There were a lot of unbelievers at my aunt's memorial service that had no problem being at a Christian service, that had no problem with the pastor preaching a message of salvation through Jesus alone and those who reject Jesus going to hell. That's absolutely what the pastor preached at my aunt's memorial service. And a lot of unbelievers had no problem hearing that because that's, to some extent, that's the culture of Texas. 
It's still a culture that is okay with Christian principles. But what's hard to discern in that type of setting is who really is standing up for Jesus. So as the culture moves and as the situation darkens, you know what happens? You know what good redemptive purpose God brings from that? It's so much easier to see the true followers of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says we shine like stars in the midst of a perverted and corrupt generation. Well, if we were to step outside right now and look up to the sky, you know, the stars are still there. The stars are still there. I see Paul nodding his head. Paul's a science guy. He could, he could probably find a way to show us that the stars are still there even on a bright sunny day. They're still there. But in the middle of a bright sunny day, you can't see them. You see, the stars don't actually shine and stand out until it gets dark. Now, I would never choose for a culture to become dark. And I don't think the Lord would ever choose for a culture to become dark and move away and practice and principle and common held morality from the truths of Scripture. But one of the glorious redemptive things that happens when that takes place is the true followers of Jesus can now be seen. You see, each one of us has an opportunity to shine for Jesus in Philadelphia right now, even more so because we're living in a culture that's becoming hostile to him. There's fewer and fewer people that are bold enough to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. There's fewer and fewer people who are willing to say, I'm trying to give my life for Jesus. I'm trying to do what he would expect me to do. All of a sudden now, we are standing out like beautiful, radiant, glorious stars on a dark, dark night. One of God's redemptive purposes. So there is a remnant. There was a remnant in Israel. There was a remnant in Paul's days. There is a remnant today. And you are part of that remnant. And through us, the remnant, God gives hope to a city like Philadelphia. Through the remnant, through those faithful who are trying so hard to stand for Jesus in this place, God gives hope to this city. As long as you and I are still breathing, as long as there is still someone here who is willing to say, Jesus is my Lord, then a remnant remains and there's hope for this city. We can't let go of that. We can't let go of that. But I told you, I told you one verse late. I apologize. I meant to tell you before I started reading it. I told you between 8 and 9. Look at the many times that the Lord mentions my servants, my servants. And if we look at verses 8 to 15, we see that's a designation that's frequently used. In verse 9, he says, my servants, my servants will inhabit my holy mountain. My servants will live in my holy place. And then in 13 and 14, he said, My servants will eat. My servants will drink. My servants will rejoice from a glad heart. My servants will have joy. Look at the incredible, extravagant blessings that belong to those who are servants of the Lord. You know, oftentimes when we hear the word servant, it's a title that we would rather not take upon ourselves. We still sort of had that idea that, you know, the servants are kind of like, you know, I don't want to be a servant. 
But look at the glorious, glorious things that are promised to the servants of the Lord. Living in his holy place. Enjoying the best that he has to offer. And having hearts of uncontainable joy and gladness. That's what is promised to the servants of the Lord. And look at the contrast he makes. Because the Lord through the prophet Isaiah, he's indicting the majority of the nation. But he says, because that's not what you are going to have. You are going to have misery and judgment and lack and pain. That's what is allotted to you because you are not counted amongst my servants. But to my servants, look at all I'm going to do for them. Look at all I'm going to give them. Look at the abundance that will be theirs. Now some of you may be thinking of the place in the Gospel of John where Jesus is looking at his disciples and he says, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. So is servant still a title that we should take upon ourselves? Well, I believe absolutely so. The Apostle Paul, certainly well aware of that conversation that Jesus had with his disciples, regularly called himself a servant of the Lord. Jesus' own brother James, the author of the book of James, unashamedly called himself a servant of the Lord. What Jesus is saying is that there is one aspect of being a servant that is not true for you as servants of the Lord, which is a servant doesn't know. Servant doesn't know what his master is up to. A servant has no idea why he's being asked to do what he's being asked to do. And Jesus says, that's not the case with you because I've revealed the Father to you. You know my Father. You know his heart. You know his mind. You know his will. So you are not servants in ignorance. You are not servants that are being kept in a dark corner. And that's why Jesus says, I call you friends. So if you're thinking of a servant as someone who has no idea why they're doing what they're doing, Jesus says, no, that's not who you are. But I believe it is still one of the most glorious names that we can take upon ourselves. To be called a servant of the Lord. And of course, the world, the world doesn't want to serve anyone. The world doesn't want to serve anything. The world just wants to do what they think is their own choice. But of course, what they don't understand is that they are servants. And they are slaves. In their freedom, they're slaves to sin. In their freedom, they're slaves to the kingdom of darkness. In their freedoms, they're slaves to the devil himself. So what the world calls freedom is no freedom at all. Freedom to make choices that will lead to their own death. Freedom to make choices that will lead to misery. Freedom to make choices that ultimately will consign them to eternity in hell. That's the freedom that the world has. That's no freedom. That's just slavery to a miserable taskmaster, the devil in the kingdom of darkness. So we are servants, not servants in ignorance, not servants who are unaware, servants who are friends, servants who are intimate, but we are servants. And what a blessing. What a blessing to be able to say, Jesus, I want to serve you. I want to bow at your feet. I want to call you master. I want to call you Lord. I want to humble myself in your presence. 
I want to die to myself. I want to die to my ego. I want to fall on my face before you and declare I am a servant. Ask of me what you will. I want that. I don't live that every day. But that's what I want. I don't want to be ashamed to be called a servant. I don't want to be so puffed up in my pride. How dare anyone call me a servant? I don't want that. I want to serve Jesus. I want to belong to him. And look again at Isaiah. Look what he promises us. It's not misery. It's not emptiness. It's not despair. It's not agony. It's not meaningless, endless toil without any benefit. He promises us that he we will have a place in the holy place that he has prepared. We will enjoy the lavish and abundant blessings of his food, of his drink, and joy will pour out of our hearts. Are you kind of a, a, a miserable person? Are you kind of a downer? Are you kind of someone who complains a lot? You know one radical choice? Just try falling down in the presence of Jesus. Because what, what Isaiah said is, my servants, those who absolutely fall at my feet, they will have joy. And, and again, look at how he describes it. It's not like, you know, they'll kind of secretly lift up one hand in the back during worship so that nobody can see. Not that lifting up your hands is anything. Don't, I, I don't mean it that way. But he says, my servants will rejoice but you will be put to shame. My servants will sing out of the joy of their hearts. That's what it means to be a servant. That's part of the blessing of being a servant. And so Jesus, I want to be a servant. Forgive me, I'm not your servant every day. I'm not your servant every day. You know, there's a, a sort of a repeated conversation that my wife and I have. If I do a rare chore around the house, she'll thank me for doing, I don't know, the laundry or, you know, doing the dishes once a week or whatever. And, you know, I'll jokingly say, but in all seriousness, I'll say, this is what I was born to do. But do I really believe that? Because it's actually 100% true. I was born to serve. I was created to serve. I want that to be my heart. I want that to be my heart. Jesus, I was born to serve you. I was created to serve you. And it doesn't end in drudgery and misery and pain and anguish. It ends in joy. Rejoicing, uncontainable joy to be a servant of the Lord. Well, to me, the most incredible aspect of being called a servant of the Lord in this passage, and this is what really gripped me, and this is why we're in Isaiah 65, he says, again, as he's, as he's looking at the sinful, rebellious, wayward people in the nation of Israel, in verse 15, you will leave your name to my chosen ones as a curse. Their name was going to become a curse. What a, what a devastating judgment. There are some things that are named, there are some people that are named, their name has become a curse. 
So identified are they with sinfulness and evilness. To my chosen ones, your name will be left as a curse. The sovereign Lord will put you to death. But to his servants, he will give another name. And at this point, Isaiah doesn't say anything more about it. He simply says that that faithful remnant, that, 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 that incredible presence of the hope of God in the midst of a wayward nation, that light shining in a very, very dark place, all those around them, their name is going to become a curse. But to that handful of faithful, those few that are not bowing the knee to Baal, but are bowing the knee to the Lord, God is going to look at those faithful servants and he's going to give them a different name. He's going to give us a different name. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, expanded that. Revelation chapters 2 and 3, where Jesus is giving seven messages to seven churches. To the church of Pergamum, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. Revelation chapter 2, verse 17. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Jumping over to Revelation chapter 3, verse 12. Jesus' message to the church in Philadelphia. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. Three names were promised to those who would remain faithful to Jesus. Jesus said, I will give you the name of my God. One of the most glorious names that we have been given is the name that identifies us as belonging to God. Your name declares that you are his. The name of the new Jerusalem, the name of the city of my God, Jesus says, the name that God gives you declares where you belong. You belong to him and you belong in the perfect place that he has prepared for you. And then Jesus says, and you will have a new name. You have a new identity. You have a new calling. You have a new character. You have a new role that is only defined by who you are in Jesus Christ. Part of that role is being a son or daughter of the Father. Larry preached an amazing sermon on that a few weeks back. 
But you need to understand that Jesus is willing to give his name to you. The name that declares you belong to him. The name that declares you have a place with him. The name that declares you are new in him. And the fact that God names us shows that he has relationship with us. He knows us. He loves us. He cares about us. But also that he has authority over us. Remember, Adam was told to name all of those amazing creatures in the garden because God was saying, Adam, I give you authority. As God names us, God is declaring, I have authority over you. But my authority over you is one of relationship and intimacy and connection and knowledge and care and love. That's the name that we bear. And no one in the world around us Not a single unbeliever in the city of Philadelphia shares that incredible privilege of being given by God a different name. You have a new name. You have a new name that identifies the fact that you belong to him. The fact that you belong to the place that he is preparing. The fact that you are new in Christ. We're going to close, and we're going to close by reading the end of this chapter. Because Isaiah was given a small glimpse of that incredible place that the Lord is preparing for all of those who bear his name. For all of those who have that new and different name given to us by God. This is just a small glimpse of what is awaiting us. Picking it up in verse 16. It says, whoever invokes a blessing in the land will do so by the name of God, the God of truth. He who takes an oath in the land will swear by the God of truth. For the past troubles will be forgotten and hidden from my eyes. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not even be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought of as a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered cursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them, or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. But dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. Let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for giving us this opportunity today to spend some time looking to you, to spend some time looking to your word. And we thank you that you are a God of incredible redemption. One of the most devastating circumstances, your people rejecting you, led to the salvation of the Gentiles. That could only come from your heart, Lord. That could only come from a God as good as you. Father, we thank you that you have preserved us and will continue to preserve us as a remnant in this city. And we pray, Lord God, that through us there would be hope. Not because of anything we are by ourselves, but because of who you are in us. May we bring hope to the city simply because Christ lives in us. And Father, I pray that you would help us to hold on to that hope in the midst of some really discouraging circumstances. May we hold on to hope. And Father, I pray that you would help each one of us to joyfully, willingly call ourselves your servants. Not because we are in ignorance, not because we do not know, but because it is a privilege to be able to bow our knees to you. It is a privilege to be able to say, here I am, Lord, use me. And Lord, what you promise, what you promise your servants is so incredibly extravagant and good. The abundance, the blessing, the joy that simply comes out of us because we willingly choose to serve you. Nothing in this world can dim or darken that. And so help us, Lord. Help us, Lord. And finally, Father, we thank you for the incredible picture that you gave to Isaiah of the new heavens and the new earth that you will bring. A place of perfection. A place where your glory fills all in all a place where every tear is wiped away, where there is no sound of crying or mourning, where death will be no more. Jesus, come, come quickly and bring those new heavens and new earth. But until you do, Lord, may you find us, your servants, living faithfully for you. And Jesus, it is in your name and it is for your glory alone that we pray these things. Amen.